0: Welcome everyone to the American Ambulance EMS Podcast. We're excited to be here today. Um, we have a special guest with us, um, Mr. Matto Parker from the Central California EMS Agency. And then we have our standard co-host, Dr. Sajin Bhakta, and Dr. Patil Armenian. Hello. Hi, everyone. Hello. Um, so today we're going to be talking about SEMSA, um, CCEMSA QI initiatives
1: serves a million people in the valley We do. the brave men and women of the double-a are the best at what they do in EMS today the finest place in the world to be is right here as a part of American's
2: family help is on the way got a unit and route no matter the problem when in doubt we send them out sure as the sunrise sure as I bust this rhyme 10 minutes or less every call every time this is my career path this is what I do the double A's red white and blue Get your call on.
3: Here comes American.
2: Get your lights on.
3: Here comes American.
2: Get your gurney on. Here comes American. Get your gloves on.
3: Here comes American.
0: Get
2: your save on.
0: So welcome, Mado. We're so excited to have you um, to our podcast. And I would just like to first talk about you. Um, Tell me like, what happened that brought you into EMS. And then how did you transition from a medic into the agency? And just tell us about yourself.
3: Well, thank you for inviting me to your podcast. So I uh, started in EMS a long time ago, 1996 here at American Ambulance as an EMT. And I uh, worked here for a couple years in this system here. Uh, they sent me to paramedic school at Daniel Freeman. Definitely a unique experience there. Uh, did clinicals at L.A. County, USC, big county, a lot of time in Booth down there. Um, and then a, a nice transition in clinicals to uh, South Pasadena at Huntington Memorial, which is a level one trauma center down there, which was probably one of the nicest hospitals that I had seen. It was like a hotel there. Uh, but then came back to Fresno to do field internship and then worked as a paramedic here at American ambulance, did the rescue team, uh, field training officer, paramedic preceptor, uh, did that for about five years or so. And then went to the EMS agency the first time, did disaster planning, uh, with Curtis Jack there. And, uh, After that, a few years of that, uh, went to Fresno Unified, taught uh, at the adult school, drug calculations, anatomy, physiology, medical terminology, and then uh, recently came back to the EMS agency as the program director for the paramedic program. And then recently, I've taken over a specialty services coordinator, which doesn't say a whole lot. However, it is a lot in uh, quality improvement, uh, trauma, STEMI, and stroke centers, and then EMS for children.
0: Awesome. That's a lot on your plate. They should have a, a much bigger title. <laughs> yes. Yeah, it is a lot. Um, and so tell us about your educational background. You kind of took a circuitous route. Um, so tell us how you like kind of progressed uh, through your education.
3: Yes. Uh, I, when I worked as an EMT, I was at in uh, undergrad at uh, Fresno State in uh, community health and actually took a semester off, last semester off to go to paramedic school uh, because uh, I saw that as a unique opportunity to be able to to go to Southern California and to do uh, my paramedic training down there. Um, And then uh, when I came back, uh, worked as a paramedic for a while, immediately enrolled in grad school. That was in the Masters of Public Health program at uh, CSU Fresno. And that was in environmental occupational health, uh, which is actually kind of funny because I've never worked in environmental occupational health. It was just more interesting than community health. Was a brand new paramedic in grad school uh, but it definitely added to uh, my professional career and getting a big understanding of, of public health, which is in the forefront right now in the day and age of COVID. And so it, it gave me a lot of life experience that helps going forward here at the EMS agency.
0: Yeah, that's fantastic. You don't hear much about paramedics going into public health. And so especially in the land of COVID, I think it's it's awesome because then you have that medical background, that EMS first responder background combined with the public health knowledge. Well, thank you for being here with us today. Um, Our goal in this kind of a unique podcast is to talk about some QI initiatives and kind of um, what uh, the EMS agency has seen and see trends in the county's data and like how we can improve that. And let's talk about it. Um, First, I want to talk about um, Title 22. Like a lot of people have asked, like, what defines the scope of practice of a paramedic?
3: Yes, Title 22 is going to define every aspect of uh, emergency medical services. Uh, as far as uh, training goes, a uh, scope of practice, uh, quality improvement, most recently uh, STEMI regulations, stroke regulations coming into play, kind of like uh, w- what trauma centers have had for a long time here. And it really defines what we can do as a training program, what we can do as uh, EMS providers. And what we can do as an EMS region and how we implement the scope of practice, not only with the paramedics, but also with the EMTs and, and first responders. Being uh, data-driven is what a lot of our policies, protocols, and procedures are. Uh, there's a lot of research that goes into that before we start to implement and, and trial studies and things like that. Uh, but one of the, the avenues that we recently have pursued is expanded scope. And so there's provisions in the regulations to be able to apply for expanded scope. And we did this early last month, and this was in response to COVID. And this was in response to allowing paramedics to, do, to administer medications outside the typical scope of practice, uh, whether it's intraocular medications or other oral medications that aren't typically uh, seen in the EMS system. And so what we have done is we have petitioned to, this, to the EMS authority to be able to allow paramedics to do this in a static site, so a, a uh, alternative care site or a hospital ED or something like that, not necessarily on the ambulance in the EMS system, but overseen by physicians and nurses to be able to assist in the, uh, the shortage of
0: staffing that we are seeing currently today. I know American has been very um, doing a lot of that and lots of other EMS agencies have also, too, like sending their medics to nursing homes and hospitals to help out. And that's been amazing. So, Matta, we like to use the term SEMSA, which is CCEMSA. Can you tell us like what that stands for, what counties you cover, and um, like what kind of region that is?
3: Yes, uh, CCEMSA is Central California EMS Agency. And we are the, EMS, the local EMS agency for uh, Fresno, Kings, Madera, and Tulare counties. Uh, so we oversee all policy, protocol, procedure. Um, we accredit uh, EMTs, paramedics, mobile intensive care nurses, and base hospital physicians in the four county region, uh, as well as administer contracts uh, for ambulance providers and really just EMS as a whole. Uh, one of our other big uh, parts in this in this whole system is the EMS Communications center, uh, which out of Fresno handles uh, not only EMS communications, but also some fire department uh, dispatch services as well for Fresno Kings and Madera uh, counties. Uh, Tulare County is run by uh, TCAD, which is the Tulare County Consolidated Ambulance Dispatch Center, but we work closely with them as well.
0: Oh, fantastic. So it's uh, for those of you who don't know California, it's a big chunk of uh, space right in the center of California And um, it's all done by our EMS agency. So we're going to look at what data they track. And we're going to talk about some of these important things. First one we're going to look at is stat on scene times. Maybe if you can, we'll start with trauma. And, Matt, if you can tell us, like, what have we seen in 2020? um, How are stat on scene times doing?
3: Yeah, so this is uh, stat trauma on scene times for uh, the year 2020. And the way we report this data is uh, we have no delays removed and delays removed. And which is where we see the difference in percentages on these stat on scene times. Uh, Now, to define that, uh, delays removed. Uh, would be anything that delays the the paramedic or the, the EMT to be able to make patient contact, like uh, going f- into a jail, which is going to take a significant amount of time to get to the patient side, or an extrication, or if there's multiple patients, um, and so that's where we see the big jump in our our data on there. So with uh, no delays removed, and so we look at we track times, scene times. So this would be less than ten minutes on scene time. Uh, we're at forty six percent for. 2020. So what that means is 46% of the time, we're getting off scene in uh, less than 10 minutes uh, with no delays removed. Uh, Between uh, 10 and 20 minutes, we're at 88% with no delays removed. But then once we remove those delays, uh, those percentages jump up to uh, less than 10 minutes is 90%. And then between 10 and 20 minutes, we're at 99% of the time. We're getting off scene in less than 20 minutes.
0: And we're a load and go uh, county, right? You know, we want them off scene. Remind me again, the official from the county is you want them off scene in less than 10 minutes, 90% of the time. That's what we, yeah, that that is our goal. Fantastic. So we are meeting that with the delays removed um, in stat traumas. So what about in stat non-trauma shock?
3: So a non-traumatic shock uh, for, for 2020 The uh, less than 10 minutes with no delays removed were 16% of the time. So that's really, really low. And then uh, between 10 and 20 minutes, we're at 74%. So... Personally, what I attribute this to is just the time in the assessment, being able to identify that you're dealing with non-traumatic shock. Uh, sometimes it's very simple to see when they're pale, cool, diaphoretic, and they're, they look hypotensive and they look like they're about to die. It's it's pretty easy to notice that right away. But sometimes that gets masked by a lot of different factors, uh, whether it's medications or other uh, illnesses that the, that they're dealing with. Uh, When we remove those delays, uh, less than 10 minutes is 48%, and then between 10 and 20 minutes, we're up to 89%. Uh, So some significant things that we've experienced in our system recently is uh, skilled nursing facility patient access and uh, getting the information uh, from the skilled nursing facility. That's kind of uh, caused a little bit of a slowdown. Uh, with our on scene times in the CQI committee, we've made some initiatives to help improve that in working with the skilled nursing facilities and getting the the needed information, the, the essential information that we need to be able to take the patient to the hospital and, and pass on that information to the to the nurses and physicians at the hospitals.
0: Right, I know the county's is working um, a lot on um, educating the nursing homes on like, you know, we don't need the whole patient's chart. We don't need, you know, just get in and get out with these sick patients. And then I think there was even an acronym, if I remember right, created.
3: Yes. Th- think CHAMP. Chief Complaint, History,
0: Allergies,
3: Medications, and PULST. And that's the essential information that we want to take with the patient when they're transported to the hospital.
0: Right. Everything else can be faxed that to the hospital. Yes. It's like we don't need anything else. Um, That's great. So we definitely have some work to do when it comes to non-traumatic shock um, in our system. How about uh, stat coronary ischemic uh, chest discomfort? How's that one going?
3: Okay. So in in 2020, with no delays removed, less than 10 minutes on scene time, we're at 26% as a a system. And then between 10 and 20 minutes, we're at 91%. Um, And then with the delays removed, less than 10 minutes at 58%. And then between 10 and 20 minutes, we're at 95% and one of the things i attribute this to is the you know, more extensive questioning more extensive as- assessment and then getting some things done on scene before you transport as as well like medications getting nitroglycerin and aspirin administered uh, starting an iv and and things like that kind of slows things down a little bit.
0: It seems like we're close, though, with the coronary ischemic chest discomfort. Like, I mean, we are 95% of the time getting it in less than 20 minutes. So it's like, you know, we could really just get you, you shaved off 10 minutes. And we're going to talk a little bit about why statin on scene times are so important and what's the evidence um, behind that. Um, Sajjan, do you want to jump in and talk about trauma and why it's so important in trauma to get off scene?
2: Yeah, so... Uh, There have been several different articles that look at the data in terms of on-scene times and association with mortality. The uh, big paper that we tend to look at that was done recently, published in the Journal of Trauma and Acute Care Surgery in 2016, showed that after looking at almost 200,000 patients, uh, mortality was actually directly associated with longer on-scene times, especially in patients that had hypotension, penetrating injury, and flail chest. And this is a lot of the reason why we tend to have a load and go system, especially in these trauma patients that would benefit from being at the hospital, having more resources available, and having the definitive care available to them. We wanna get them to that place as quickly as possible.
0: Yeah, and another great study actually just came out in 2019, um, and so it was published in the American Journal of Surgery, and it was titled "Every Minute Counts: The Impact for Prehospital Response Time and Scene Time on Mortality of Penetrating Trauma Patients." So these are your gunshot wounds, these are your stab wounds, so all penetrating trauma patients. They looked at 1.5 million trauma patients. I can't imagine that poor person doing that data, but that is a lot of patients. And, they look, and the, da- the data was from 2010 to 2016. They looked at dispatch time and on-scene time, and it correlated to hospital mortality. And it showed that every single minute you're still on scene independently correlated with a 1% increase in mortality. So that is huge. So if you're on scene 11 minutes, that's one more percentage point of, of more, a 1% increase in their mortality. So getting off scene in less than 10 minutes is really important. And in looking back at the data, Maddo said that if you remove your delays, you know, we are meeting that. So 90% of the time we are meeting that with our stat trauma, penetrating trauma patients. But it's not just important for trauma patients. Um, Dr. Arminian, do you want to tell us um, what about these medical patients?
1: Um, yeah, so there was um, a really good study done looking at ST elevation MI patients. And, um, and what they saw was that you know, you have a door-to-balloon time of 90 minutes. Your goal is to get these patients to the cath lab within 90 minutes of arrival to the hospital. And any patients with a total time greater than 120 minutes, um, that's including your on-scene time and, um, and transport time, um, resulted in significant complications and increased mortality rates. So basically, um, even for our ST elevation MIs, the shorter on-scene time you have, it was correlated with better patient outcomes.
0: Right. So we gotta think about it the same way, like in this way they're clotting off their hearts, right? For STEMIs, right? So not able to get blood flow to their heart. So every minute that you're on scene is another minute that cells are dying. Similar to where you're bleeding to death from a stab wound, right? Every minute you're on scene, you're bleeding more. And so we really gotta think about them, I think, the same way. And we're pretty close with our coronary scheme at chest pain, you know, we are. Um, but I think it's, it's one initiative we can work on. So let's jump to another topic that the EMS agency tracks, and that's CPAP um, without medication. So on our CHF protocol, shortness of breath, they get CPAP put on and nitroglycerin as the medication, and then they track um, when CPAP's done without meds.
3: Yes. So uh, CPAP without meds, we've been tracking this for a while now. Up through April 30th, which is our typical reporting for this uh, so far for this year, uh, we have a 94% compliance uh, with getting the medications on board first before CPAP. Uh, What we do is we go through and uh, all of those PCRs that have uh, a CPAP administration without a medication, we go through and look at those and see what was the reason for uh, the medication not being administered, whether it was a blood pressure or if a medication was given prior to arrival by a family member or something like that. And we filter some of those out. Uh, we've uh, been working really hard at, at increasing this compliance. The studies show, the data shows that CPAP is, is an adjunct to uh, dealing with this uh, respiratory distress and that the medications play a very important role in the overall treatment.
0: Yeah, so just for some background for our audience, um, let's talk about really quick, like how does nitro work in CHF?
2: So your heart is basically a pump. What happens in patients with heart failure is that their pump is not working well. And if you think about the circulation of the body, you have the right-sided system and the left-sided system, the right taking blood from your body, pumping it through your lungs, and the left pumping it from your lungs to the rest of your body. What happens in heart failure usually is that the left side of the heart tends to have hard time pumping all that blood from the lungs to the body. So blood starts backing up into the lungs. And when blood starts backing up into the lungs, it can cause a lot of pressure and it can leak out into the lungs themselves. And that's when you get that pulmonary edema that gives patients their shortness of breath and chest pain, and causes them to be coughing up a lot of thick sputum and dropping their oxygen saturation. And so not only are we going to give them CPAP, which is positive pressure into the lungs to try and push out all of that fluid from the alveoli, but we're also trying to relieve the pressure that's there. What nitro does is nitro expands the venous system it is able to offload some of the blood going into the heart so that the heart doesn't have to pump as much and there's less volume for it to have to work with. Uh, Nitro also has an effect of dilating the coronary blood vessels themselves. And so you're giving the heart more oxygen, which it really needs because it's working too hard.
0: And so nitro is really the drug that dilates these blood vessels so that way CPAP can work better. So CPAP without meds is not effective at all. And I mean, effective a little bit, I want to say at all. But I mean, it's not as effective, but you couple it with the nitroglycerin. It's very, very effective. And really, it's in the olden days when uh, we were all, well, not Sajin because he's young, but the rest of us were practicing. You, you intubate a lot of these patients. And Really, CPAP and nitro have changed the face of CHF, and I can't remember intubating it CHF patient in the last ten years. Like, Sajan, have you ever intubated a CHF patient? Never. Right. We and that used to was,
1: intubate them all the time. <laughs> right. That was like our hey, let's get a tube.
0: Right. We so um, it's great. Like, it has really staved off that kind of morbidity of having to intubate these patients. So I can see why it's a really important thing to track.
3: And, and I remember working, you know, and working in a system without CPAP. When I was working as a paramedic, we did not have that. It was it was nitro and it was Lasix. And it was amazing to see how fast the nitroglycerin worked to the point where they're severely short of breath on scene. And by the time you're at the hospital, they're ready to go home because you've given them all that nitroglycerin to decrease that preload on the heart. And they feel a lot better.
0: Um, so, Matto, just for everybody who good review that's listening to this podcast in our system, just go ahead and review for us. What is the nitroglycerin? Um, uh, go through the pathway. Go through the um, the protocol, please, for us.
3: Uh, after you administer the oxygen, the high-flow oxygen to these patients, uh, the nitroglycerin is going to be blood pressure dependent. So between uh, 100 and 120 systolic, you're going to give one tablet. Between 120 and 200 to salt, you're going to give two tablets. And then at 200 plus, you're going to give three tablets. And that's every three to five minutes. So you can get a lot of nitroglycerin on board, uh, up to a max of uh, nine tablets total. Um, And then they're they're also going to get some nitro paste after you transport, and that's blood pressure dependent as well, obviously, uh, but it increases based upon the systolic blood pressure. So between 100 and 120, they're going to get an inch of paste, and then 120 systolic plus, they're going to get two inches of paste.
0: And that's a lot of nitro. So you think about a 10 minute transport time is our average here in our county. So in 10 minutes, you know, they can come in with nine tabs of uh, nitro already and nitro paste on, and they are significantly improved um, by the time they get to the ER. So that's, that's a great, uh, a great system there. Okay, let's jump to the next um, QI initiative, and that is bilateral needle thoracostomy and trauma codes. Um, We did a podcast on this, and it was our Trauma Codes podcast. It was released July 1st. If you haven't heard that, um, please go check that out. And that's a lot of the details around trauma codes and why we need to needle them. But let's talk about the data. Um, How good are we MATO at doing this? How often in in trauma codes, so that's an arresting trauma patient, are we needling them on both sides?
3: So uh, right now, between January 1 and April 30, uh, 94% compliance with the protocol. Um, and, and that's increased significantly over the, the last uh, last year or so. Um, and it, it's, it's been things like the podcast and getting the education out there and just reminding the, the field crews that uh, this is going to be a procedure that they're going to do before they initiate transport. Uh, recently, we issued a special memo that changed some of the wording in the protocol in uh, 530.04, the trauma cardiac, Traumatic Cardiac Arrest Protocol. Um, and before, it said, if suspected chest injury, and what we had seen in the system and in the hospitals was that we were having chest injuries, significant chest injuries that would require needle thoracostomy, that were being missed because they weren't necessarily considered suspected by the field crews, and so we've changed that wording in the protocol uh, to be head, neck, or torso trauma uh, with this, this cardiac arrest to, to do a bilateral neothoracostomy before transport.
0: Right. So, example, of the, like, we, I know there's a case in the system where somebody got a gunshot wound to the buttocks and coded. And so, it, on the poor medic side, it's like, well, it's not suspecting chest trauma. The GSW is in the lower half, but we all know that that can travel and bounce. And so, if that guy's coding, we want them to needle them. Other indications were like found downs or like jumped off buildings, right? Or MVCs. So, you know, you don't see chest trauma. So, I, I really like this new wording that the agency's come out with and the protocol changed. So, remind us again, it's suspected all torso head or neck.
3: Yeah, which is pretty much anything other than the limbs. We're yeah. going to do bilateral neutroposomies in traumatic cardiac arrests.
0: Great. And um, we're doing really good at that. It seems like we're um, our numbers are pretty high 94% um, compliance with that. So way to go cruise. And we really that is a life saving thing we can do in at the scene in the field before you leave. And we've had some great saves because I know of three off the top of my head of needles in the field and the patient walks out of the hospital. So that is huge. I mean, that's someone who was dead and then got needled. And sure, lots of other interventions and had surgeries and other things, but they survived. So um, I always like to talk to medics about it's a fun procedure. It is cool. Like you're putting a needle in someone's chest and possibly saving their life. So just do it.
3: Just do it. Yeah, Because the grand scheme of things, right? You're not going to get any
0: more dead than dead. Right. So it can it can only help. Exactly. Let's jump to CARES data. Um I don't know if everybody knows about the CARES um registry. So this stands for Cardiac Arrest Registry to Enhance Survival. Patil, why don't you tell us about this registry?
1: So it's actually a national database where all cardiac arrest data is entered, um, which is pretty cool because we don't have a lot of national registries in the land of EMS or emergency medicine, and they actually track bystander CPR, demographics, uh, what if they were found in a shockable rhythm? What the discharge outcomes were, and this all started back in 2004 uh, with the CDC collaborating with Emory University. And now about 40% of the nation enters their data into this care system, and that actually represents—it um, actually has more than like 135 million people in their Cashman area. So that's a big part of the population. And so um, each year, about 350,000 people in the U.S. experience an out-of-hospital cardiac arrest um, or sudden death. And so, um, you know, the rates of survival to the hospital discharge are really poor in these cases. It's about 10%, and they've remained pretty unchanged in the last 30 years. And so if we have such a large database of cases to analyze, maybe we can start coming up with better ways to I guess, resuscitate these people.
0: Right. And finding out like what interventions matter and what things are making a difference. Um, and it's great because we have a whole year of data. We have a 2019 report. So, Matto, can you go through our cardiac arrest uh, registry to enhance survival numbers for 2019?
3: Yes. Uh, for 2019 in the CARES report, uh, we get those reports based upon provider agency um, and then the, the Central California EMS region. So Fresno, Kings, Madera, and Tulare counties, the state of California, and then the national, uh, uh nation as, as a whole. So, uh, in 2019, uh, American ambulance, Fresno, and Kings had 807, uh, cardiac arrests. And so these are also going to be non-traumatic. So these are all medical arrests. Uh, in the EMS region, uh, there was 1,300. In California, we had, uh, just over 16,000. And then in the nation, there was almost 101,000 cardiac arrests. Uh, and then the, the data that I pulled out for this podcast here was uh, ROSC, or the, the return of spontaneous circulation, and then survival to discharge percentages here. Uh, so for American Ambulance to achieve ROSC was 21%, so 21% of those cardiac arrests of those 807 achieved ROSC. In the region, it was 20%. In the state of California, uh, it jumped up to 27% for ROSC. And then in the nation, it was 31%. And then the survival to discharge percentages uh, for American, 7% of those patients uh, that went into cardiac arrest survived to discharge. Uh, In the region, uh, the EMS region, it was 6%. Uh, State of California was 8%. And then uh, the nation was 9%.
2: Is this ROSC data... Um, return to spontaneous circulation pre-hospital or at any time in their or once they reach the hospital does this count as ROSC
3: in in cares it it asks the question both ways it asks if it was a pre-hospital ROSC or if it was in in the hospital in the ED so it, that percentage could be either or okay
0: yeah. And basically, it's like, and then the survival to discharge, like, do they walk out? And they do actually classify, are they walking out to a sniff? Or are they walking out? Um, there's a classification system. Yes. And so the CARES data does give us, like, how many people are going back to normal um, walking, talking status, which is great.
1: Yeah, so it seems like our ROSC rates were lower than California as a whole in the national um, stats. But if you look at survival to discharge it kind of starts evening out and we're a little bit more, you know, kind of equal to California and the rest of the country.
0: Right. And we do have a large region with not a lot of hospitals everywhere. So some of these transport times are quite extensive in code. You know, we work longer in the field and then transport them. And so, we're not like, a, say, a New York City or a San Francisco where a trauma center is going to be around the corner. Um, and so I, I love to see these survival discharges that is this high, that we are doing great compared to some of our colleagues. So it's it's great that our survivals if, if are you doing you think so-
1: about the amount of land SEMSA covers, I mean, it is a huge chunk of California. There are some EMS agencies that cover, you know, like a tenth of what we cover.
3: Yes. Yeah. And I think that's what attributes to the the disparity in some of those percentages, especially the ROS percentages.
1: And then one of the things I noticed
0: when I was looking at the CARES data, now this is for as a whole, is um, it always to me is like, well, what's important? You know, what do we need to focus on? Um, and one of the things they talked about is if you are in an initial shockable rhythm, so if you're in fib or VTAC, you have a much higher survival rate up to 48% versus 34% for PEA and 16% for asystole. Now this is the whole nation, right? This is everybody, all the data combined. But it seems like if you can find them in a shockable rhythm, you can intervene much faster and have a better outcome, which makes sense. Every minute matters. And I think it really matters too. Is there an AED in a public place, right? Is there somebody who can put on an AED and shock them out of this rhythm? Because then their survival rate is almost 50%. That is huge. Um, another thing with CARES they talked about is good bystander CPR. So if you arrested in front of a 911 responder, you had the highest chances, uh, to survive to hospital discharge. That was 18%. So if I go down, I want to be hanging out with a paramedic. That's all I got to say. Cause somebody who knows how to do CPR around me. Um, now if just a bystander doing it is still pretty good too. If you go down in front of your family members that in the population that's 16% survival to discharge but even unwitnessed arrest only 4%. So it definitely shows that um you know early CPR and early shocking really matters.
1: So everybody needs to learn CPR.
0: Right. That's what I kind of took away from this data is, you know, and, um, we've been talking about it. At some of our CQI committee meetings is like, we really need to get into the high schools and start teaching CPR. And the unfortunate thing about COVID is all school has stopped. So it's not like we can go into high schools right now and start teaching CPR. But hopefully when COVID ends, we can make that a, a, an education QI initiative.
3: Yeah, and there's also some significant things that we do on the EMS communication side, like pre arrival instructions. And the call taker can uh, administer instructions on doing compressions on a, a patient that is in cardiac arrest over the phone, even before the first responders or the paramedics get there.
0: And that really shows that it does not matter. I mean, you would go from 4% to 16%, if you can get those bystanders to start um, pumping on their chest. I want to say the American Ambulance has been very good um, in the past about going out to like high school fairs and the, and even just the Fresno County Fair, and they have booths about teaching CPR, um, and they have lots of ways to engage the public. Sadly, a lot of that has stopped with COVID. But our prior efforts, we hope, are helping. And the more we can get uh, people to do CPR in the public and know CPR, um, it really helps. and You can tell in some of the data, um, the towns that have the most people who know CPR, they have the better best cardiac outcomes.
1: I mean, we've kind of seen this in the EMS literature for many years, but we still want to hang on to our glamorous things of like intubating people, getting that advanced airway, you know, giving your code meds. But really, you know, this data shows and what all the rest of the literature shows is that, you know, good CPR and short transport times are the things that are going to help the most. And it's, Not as glamorous as we would like it to be, um, but it's the truth. Right. And then that
0: shockable rhythm, getting the AED on, which is just like a little fancy computer, right? So really, we should have those everywhere. They should be at every grocery store. I know some states require them, and a lot of places do have them, but just knowing where they are and to get them on the patient fast. Let's talk about other SEMSA system issues, Maddo. So since you have all this audience listening to you, Tom, what are your pet peeves? What are the things you want to you know, really focus on and really hope that the medic um, takes home from you?
3: So uh, in moving over to CQI and continuous quality improvement, uh, I see a lot of data now. I see a lot of patient care data. And one of the, things, one of the challenges that we have at the EMS agency is uh, the documentation uh, and you know, in, in the electronic documentation world, a lot of things happen to be automated and pre-filled. And so while that makes the, the user experience a little easier, it has downsides on the documentation side. Uh, so some of the things that, that I frequently see in these documentation issues is the wrong protocols picked. And it might just be an alphabetized pick list, and I think this is why this happens when there's a 78-year-old male in cardiac arrest and the protocol picked is pediatric asystole. It doesn't make sense at all. Um, the other thing would be uh, not using the treatment section for all of the treatments, whether it's opening the airway, oxygen, meds, IV, procedures. Uh, a lot of times, uh, if it's not in the treatment section, it ends up in the narrative uh which it's there the documentation's there however when we go to search for specific treatments or specific medications we can't find them unless we read each and every PCR and so when the data guys go and they look for, or they're looking for something specific like narcan administration uh in, in the EMS system and it's not in the treatment now they got to pull all of those PCRs and maybe even go through hundreds of them and try to find which ones have uh, the Narcan administered, and and I've seen that recently. Uh, a couple instances with th- these issues recently in a PCR that you know it was a cardiac arrest, and those pre-filled items uh, didn't tell the picture. Pupils were equal and reactive. Skin's normal, warm, and dry. Uh, yeah, there's no pain. Yeah, there, and there's the, the, that pre-filled stuff in, in Simon. It uh, really doesn't tell the, the, the true picture, the true condition of, of the patient. Another instance, uh, I, I had a, a field crew or a paramedic uh, say, well, I don't see the the need for redundancy because I put the treatment in the narrative. And I don't need to put it in the treatment section. Well, on a data side, that's really challenging as I had You'd probably
0: rather have the mentioned. opposite. If you're only going to put it once, put it in the right. treatment yeah. side. If you're don't only going to put it in the it narrative. Once, put
3: it in, in the treatment section, definitely. And you know, if there's something in the narrative that is pertinent that requires you to to mention some sort of treatment, then go ahead and put it in there. We, we want you to do that because it's going to help the continuity of care in, in the hospital, but it also needs to be in the, in the treatment section.
0: And, and we've then, talked about this as ER physicians, how important that PCR is. I don't know if all the medics realize like every one of those gets read and it probably gets read three times right, because, yeah. you know, the attending's going to read it, the resident's going to read it, the nurse is going to read it, and it really does matter. Um, they probably think, oh, this is documentation. I'm just going to, you know, do my minimum, but it really matters what's on there.
3: Yes, because it's that briefing, it's that briefing for the healthcare provider to be able to get up to speed on what's happened with this patient, what has already been done, so they can formulate their own assessment and and treatment plan.
0: Especially in the land of COVID, where there's no family members there, there's no one else giving us the story or painting the picture, that paramedics assessment is so important.
1: Yeah, we will go out of our way to find that PCR. So know that everything is getting read. And it's one of those things just to
0: hit on is um, we're trying to be an evidence-based system, right? So we're trying to make changes based on evidence and make sure we're doing the right practice based on evidence. And one of that is with researching Simon and pulling out numbers and how are we doing on things. So if if it's not listed in there, it really does, um, it is hurtful to the whole system.
3: Yes. And and that's one of the things I think one of the messages that I want to send out to everyone is that CQI or continuous quality improvement is meant to... Uh, improve the EMS system as a whole. A a lot of individuals think that, you know, when they get that QI, oh, it's punitive, I'm in trouble, I did something wrong. Well, yeah, a lot of times it is deviation from policy or procedure. However, the purpose of it is to improve the delivery of patient care in the EMS system.
0: Well, a perfect example is like all this data showing that with cardiac ischemic chest pain, that they do better the faster they get there. Well, one of the things we're doing now and starting to do is um, transmitting your EKGs from the field to the hospital, right? Some hospitals are already doing that in our system. RMC is going to be going to that shortly. And so it's really showing that it does matter, like all these minutes shaved off, getting that EKG faster, um, it, it helps. And that's all data driven. All right. So not to hammer documentation, but let's jump to a last item. What about the eye gel? We've recently switched the eye gel as our airway of choice, given that it's COVID and, um, Versus the king, and we're not really intubating right now, uh, Matta. What do you think about that, and uh, what's your um, advice on that?
3: Yeah, so uh, back in April, what we did was we temporarily suspended endotracheal intubation, and this was all based upon in response to COVID, just minimizing exposure to the the field crews, and uh, we I- introduced the eye gel to be used here in in the EMS region. Uh, if you're unfamiliar with the eye gel, um, it is a, a superglottic airway. Uh, very easy to use. Uh, there's no balloon. You just drop it down until it stops, and you start ventilating. So it's a very uh, uh, useful and very uh, practical air, advanced airway. Uh, this eventually will be replacing King. King hasn't been taken out of five thirty point zero two general procedures as of yet, just because we're we're waiting for the provider agencies to adopt uh, it as a whole and get those IGELs out into the system. Uh, and then the general procedures will be updated with the IGEL. One of the, one of the myths surrounding even King and IGEL is that uh, the field crew does not need to get a signature, a physician's signature, uh, and that it's a BLS airway. It's not an ALS airway. Well, going back to the beginning of this podcast, we talked about Title 22, California uh, Code of Regulations. And in Title 22 for uh, for EMS supraglottic airways is, is considered an advanced airway. Uh, only paramedics can use supraglottic airways, whether it's King or or IGEL. We do have some counties that are close to us in the state of California where they allow EMTs to use IGELs. However, once again, that goes back to that expanded scope uh, that I mentioned earlier in this podcast about that county uh, applied to the state EMS authority to be able to allow their EMTs to, to administer those eye uh, IGELs. Uh, but here in Fresno, Kings, Madera, and Tulare counties and Central California EMS agency, uh, that's going to be strictly a, a paramedic skill, which means King or IGEL, you need to get a, a verification from a physician and you're going to need to get a signature.
2: And it may not be as sexy as intubating, but remember what Danielle and Patil were saying earlier, um, intubation, especially in cardiac arrest, hasn't really been shown to improve any outcomes. So we actually are in the hospital. Um, if the patient doesn't have a secure airway, instead of intubating these arrest patients right away, we are using eye gels as well. And that's what we're using as our first line airway. So please don't feel bad about it. Please just do what's right and what's safe and use the eye gel.
0: Great. So thank you so much. This has been great going through all these QI initiatives. Um, Let's just go through real quick some take-home points. Like if if everybody kind of zoned out during all of us talking, if they remember one thing, what do we want them to take home? What are the can't-miss key ideas? We'll go around the room. We'll start with you, Sajin.
2: My take-home point is on-scene times. I think it's really important to do a quick assessment and do what you need to do and then uh, take your patient to the hospital where they can get definitive care.
1: Patil. Uh, my take home point is that good CPR, um, makes all the difference in the world, especially if you happen to go into cardiac arrest in front of a medic, that's going to be your best, uh, chance at success. Um, and so I thought that was really interesting. Maddo?
3: my take home point is that, Continuous quality improvement is here to improve the EMS system as a whole and to to remember that it is not punitive and that we're just trying to deliver better patient care and and improve that patient care in the system. And I already think that all of our paramedics in our four-county region do a really good job day in and day out at delivering patient care. It's extremely important. You have an extremely important role in the EMS system, and I applaud every single one of you for that.
0: And my take on point uh, seconds, matters that, you know, our paramedics are the first 10 to 20 minutes of a patient's care. So it, it sets the stage for everything that happens after that. And um, doing all their interventions, getting them there fast, really, really matters. And what they document really, really matters. And so um, that critical time with a super sick patient uh, really matters. So thank you for doing that. And thanks for listening. Hopefully we'll have Mado back to do another QI initiative in a, in a couple yes, months. Thank you.
1: podcast at americanambulance.com. Once again, that's podcast at americanambulance.com. Thanks.
2: Thank you for joining us on the American Ambulance EMS Podcast, produced by American Ambulance in Fresno, California. The views of the guests and the hosts of this show are their own and don't necessarily reflect the views of American Ambulance or UCSF Fresno. The theme song for the show is written and performed by Roshan Roach. The beats were created by Young Pear and Brett Schoenwald. And I'm John Mark Bergen, American Ambulance's media producer, saying thanks for joining us. Have a great shift and stay safe out there.